All right, well, good morning, Antioch Community Church. I want to, of course, welcome those who are tuning in online and say a special thanks for anyone who is here for the first time. We are so blessed to have you as our guest. My name is Ben Wickle. I'm one of the pastors here. And our really, who we are as a church, we are a spiritual family of people that are committed to seeing Jesus glorified in the earth. We just heard that powerful testimony. And we meet on Sundays to corporately celebrate who Jesus is, the gospel. We meet throughout homes during the week called life groups. And then we try to even meet even smaller groups called discipleship groups. And it's through those three different venues of spiritual formation that we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be agents of transformation in our society. Uh, as you've heard us say before, the church, us, Antioch, we're, we're, we're an organization that exists for its non-members, non-members. And uh, I, I, rec I recognize that today is Palm Sunday, and it is the week before Jesus is resurrected. This is Holy Week. In some parts of the, the church, they call it Holy Week. Other churches, they call it Passion Week, and they get the word passion literally there, meaning the suffering of Jesus. And as we look at this passage of Palm Sunday, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, we are going to see really clearly the number one ministry as disciples, and that is the ministry of worship. We get this beautiful picture of, of what worship is all about. Now, the great conflict of all history, the battle of all the ages, is the battle for the human heart. Who is going to possess our affections? Who is going to possess our, 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 our convictions, our values? And in a sense, we're all worshipers. I don't care if, if, if there's someone here who says, well, I'm, I'm an atheist. No, you are still a worshiper. It's just a matter of who, who you worship. Now, I believe I'm, I'm filled, in, I'm in this room, filled with many believers here who you know who you worship. The real question then is, well, what does worship look like? How do we worship? And this morning, I want to look at this passage and describe and give to you guys four ways that we can worship King Jesus, four ways that we can be worshipers. So let's open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, and as you're getting there, I just want to point out real quickly that this story of Jesus, Palm Sunday passage, the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's one of the few stories... That's recorded in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So obviously, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them believe it's important enough that they included. All of them believe it's significant to be included in the Gospels. So they must be telling us something. Let's look at Matthew chapter 21. I'm just going to read the, the few verses here. Second, point it up. All right. Now, when they, that's Jesus, his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, before we jump into the emphasis on worship, we need to take just a couple minutes to lay down some very, very important context, both historical context, literary context. In other words, before we can ask and answer the question, what does this passage say to me? What does it mean for me? Application. We first have to ask and answer the question, what does this passage mean to them? The Jews, the first century Jews and Christians in their day. And what we're going to discover really quickly, and even throughout the whole sermon here, is that a casual reading of this passage, as 21st century Americans, we can easily miss a lot of the important implications here. So for instance, why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? What's the big deal about Jerusalem there? Then there's this whole donkey entourage thing that Jesus seems really intent He's really intent, and he wants this animal specifically. Then they're taking off their jackets. They're waving palm branches. That's what John's gospel says. It uses palm branches. So what's that all about? And then they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. How many of us know what Hosanna even means? My bottom line point is this. There's so much activity. There's so much language here that is foreign to us, and as a result, it can cause us to miss out on the big picture, applications, implications. So let's do some context to set up the scene for how we can be worshipers. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. There are two things you need to understand about Jerusalem. Number one, it is the most important city in the entire Bible. It's mentioned more than any other city, mentioned over 800 times. So when you hear or read the word Jerusalem, a a, a buzzard needs to be going off in your head. Pay attention. Pay attention. Okay? Secondly, secondly, and I, I don't expect anyone to have read Matthew 1 through 21 before you came to church this morning. But if you did, you would have recognized that on three separate occasions in Matthew, before this passage, three separate times, Jesus, he he gets his disciples together. They're really excited because Jesus is doing miracles. He's casting out demons. He's preaching the gospel. They're really excited about who Jesus is. And, but he gets them together on three separate occasions. And he says, he says, boys, I need to go to Jerusalem. Because when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be beat, flogged, crucified. But on the third day, I will be raised again. Three times. And so here in in Matthew 21, verse 1, when he's drawing near to Jerusalem, it's go time. It's game time. This is Rocky Balboa coming into the ring. 
This is Aragorn on the gates of Mordor. Jesus is coming to his city. David and Jesus both said, this is the city of the great king. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says, Jerusalem is the, is the throne of God. So here he is. He, it's, it's the culmination. It's the crescendo of not just three years of ministry, but hundreds of years, generations of prophecy about to be fulfilled. We might have missed that when we first read it, right? Jesus is marching to Jerusalem. Let's keep reading on. Give us some more context here. Then Jesus, continuing verse 1 through 5, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. This passage also needs a little bit of unpacking for us. Now, we get some help because Matthew is quoting a prophet from the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah. And anytime you read something, in, particularly in the New Testament, where it's quoting the Old Testament, we, we need to go back and find out, well, who's Zechariah? Well, Zechariah was a prophet to God's people after 70 years of Exile. Remember, they were under Babylonian rule, under P Persian rule. They were allowed to go back to Israel, rebuild their lives. And as they're rebuilding their lives, they are crying out to God, God, what about the son of David? What about the promises? And Zechariah says, behold, your king, he's coming, humble, riding on a donkey. So for starters, Jesus his intention, his persistence, his insist, incense, his insistence, sorry, in getting a, a, a donkey is because he's saying, I'm him. I'm the guy. I'm fulfilling scripture right here. But there's something else that's happening too. Why is he particularly riding a donkey? Jesus is coming to restore peace with us. Peace with us. He didn't come riding on a horse. If, if a king came riding on a horse, what did that mean? He's coming, yeah, he's coming for battle, he's coming for war. He comes riding on a donkey. And it was common in, in ancient, Near East, ancient Near East cultures, if you came riding on a donkey or came riding on a mule, you're coming in peace. He's coming in peace. Generations prior to Jesus, his own descendant, King Solomon, on the day that he was anointed king, he rode a mule to Jerusalem. And King Solomon would usher in the greatest era of peace that Israel had known. In effect, Jesus is communicating that he has come to restore peace in our relationship with God. Paul put it like this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how was this peace accomplished? The humble nature of the animal itself symbolized and represented the humble nature, sacrificial nature of its rider. The humble nature of the animal, the donkey, symbolizes the humble, sacrificial nature of its rider. Jesus is in effect, he rode, in effect, Jesus rode that donkey to show us he is the prophesied Messiah, our Prince of Peace, who would usher in a new season of peace with God made possible through his sacrifice. 
now we can begin to understand a little bit this worshipful response from the crowds. Is that some good context? All right, that's the intro. Here we go. Here's the real sermon. Our response, worship. Worship. Four ways. I'm going to give you four ways we can worship God. Number one, worshipers view sacrifice as honor, as an honor. Worshippers view sacrifice as an honor. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, their outer garments, their tunics, their, their jackets. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. So what's this about? Is this just some modern gesture of honor? Is this just a, a, a modern version of rolling out the red carpet? Well, for starters, jackets and, and outer garments were way more important to people in those days than they are to us, right? How many jackets do we have in our closet? We have five, ten, right? They may have one, maybe two. And a, a jacket, a garment was so important that if you were indebted to someone and you gave up your jacket as a pledge to say, I will pay you back, according to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses in the Old Testament, According to God's law, the person who took the jacket, they were actually mandated to give it back before sunset. A jacket was an inalienable possession. Everyone needed one. Everyone deserved one. The disciples, the crowds, they were laying down a very personal, literally their closest possession before Jesus as a sign of honor. In effect, they're saying, you are worthy of my possessions. My personal belongings. It would be an honor, Lord. Come, come walk by my jacket. Come, come sit on my jacket, Lord. Now notice this. Was it an act of honor that was mandated, commanded, or was it voluntary? Voluntary. He, he didn't command this. See, there's, I, I think, sometimes a, a shallow, maybe immature understanding of sacrifice when we give up something to the Lord. Maybe it's our tithes, our money, our time, our, our giftings. That we, we can easily focus on what it's going to cost us. And we, we say, we obey, Lord. Uh, okay, I'll do it, but I don't really like to, Lord. Have you ever obeyed the Lord like that? Okay, God, I'll do it, but I really don't like it. Uh, our family, every time we go run errands, we take the big van. We call it it's the silver bullet. We come back home. And... We're letting the kids out, and there's this tendency among our kids, they're, they're seven, five, and, and, and four, that there's, it's, it's like a, a, a destruction derby race to the front door every time. And of course, our, our oldest is Brennan, he's our son, you can imagine who wants to get there first every time. And as he's barreling through his sisters, I'm, watch out for your sisters, be, be patient, I'm, I'm giving him instructions to, to, to be a gentleman, teaching him that. And you know what he doesn't say? Oh, yes, Father, after you, dear sister, please come through. <laughs> he hasn't learned that yet. But we're hoping that after years of demonstrating sacrificial love with his mother and I, that we can, he can eventually learn the joy of serving. It's more like, oh, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> People who have kids, they know when you tell your kid to say you're sorry, it's sorry. They're obeying, but not really wanting to obey. It's a very immature form of, of, of obedience and, and honor. 
And that's kind of like what it is for us. We can miss out on the honor of, of giving fill in the blanks. The apostles, when they were being beaten in the book of Acts, chapter 4, for preaching the gospel, uh, you remember how they responded? Oh, God, what an honor. It's a joy to be beaten. It's a joy to suffer. So what does that mean for us? How can we honor the Lord as mature worshipers? We honor the Lord with our, our tithes. God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. It's interesting when I talk to Christians about tithing and giving, there's always this question. Well, well isn't that tithe? Do, do Christians have to tithe? It, it always gets asked in, 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 the, in the question, and it's always part of it. And it's like, well, you're missing out. That's the wrong question. How about our, our schedule, our time? We can give our time. There's the disruption in our lives that you experience to serve another brother or sister, perhaps a stranger, that will benefit you 0%. Maybe it's that time you, you feel led to share your faith with a stranger, coworker, neighbor, but they end up being hostile to you and you receive rejection. Is it an honor? Is, it a, is that sacrifice, it's, it's about a different perspective. Not what is it going to cost me, but oh, I get to. Worshippers worship, they view sacrifice as an honor. Number two, worshipers give God highest praise. Look at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting. Luke's gospel put it this way, they rejoiced. The Bible is filled with exhortations to give vocal, passionate praise. Look at the verses right here, Psalm 27, 6. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. Psalm 33, 3. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 47, 1. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God. Psalm 66, 1 through 2. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. I'm going to, we're going to cue a video here. And, and this is a perfect video of childlike faith of how you can express joy when receiving something from the Lord. And this is an epic YouTube video that goes back about 15 years ago. Some of you might recall this. This was my generation. All right, let's cue it. So if the boy can get excited about a Nintendo 64, anyone had a Nintendo 64 growing up? We can get a little excited about the resurrection. Amen? When the Jews were seeing with their own eyes the messianic hope of generations past, they couldn't keep it in the telling of the story in Luke's gospel. They were so, the Pharisees were so offended. They said, Jesus, you need to rebuke your disciples. You need to rebuke your disciples. This is uncalled for. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If they don't worship, the rocks will cry out. It offended the religious leaders. 
Sadly, or unfortunately, extravagant worship has a tendency to offend the faithless, the unbeliever. To this day, the greatest critics of passionate worship have been religious leaders within the church. But as one song puts it, ain't no rock gonna cry in my place as long as I'm alive to glorify his holy name. It does beg the question, if we're never shouting or rejoicing, let me give you this quote from John Piper. He says, do we ever feel the realities of the mercies of God, our redemption, the spiritual conflict we're engaged in, the promise of our resurrection, Christ's ultimate triumph, strongly enough to inspire a shout? I ask this question for a couple reasons. One, it might reveal a personal, affectional deficit in our souls that we need to address with our Lord, that we're not connecting deeply enough with the realities of what's happened and been promised to us. What we may need is to repent of giving excessive attention to lesser things and spend more expended, extended time meditating on the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus in order to stoke the embers of our passion for him. So the next time we corporately sing, I, I, I want to encourage you, we raise our hands and surrender. That's why we do that. It's a surrender thing. You raise your hands. You can... You can, you, there's permission, there's, there's an invitation to clap, there's an invitation to j dance. If we can do that, when our favorite team throws the spherical pigskin object through a circle, and we go nuts, right? Surely we can do that for Jesus. Worshippers will worship the Lord in highest praise. Number three, the third way we can be worshipers of Jesus. Worshippers worship in truth. See, it's not just about emotion for emotion's sake. We're not trying to conjure up hype. There's a focal point to our worship. There, there is a, there's a person with truthful qualities that we set our gaze on. Notice at verse 9, it says this. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is the highest. Hosanna literally means God saves us. God saves us. They were shouting the correct truthful attributes of who God is and what he was doing. God you're saving us. And then it says that they shouted blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a scripture reference. They're shouting a psalm, I believe Psalm 118. If you ever are in worship, I encourage you, have your Bibles open. Just begin, as you're singing, just begin declaring, God, you're this way. God, I declare the truth of who you are. The focal point of our worship is never about how we feel. It's not about how us. It's not about really worshiping our worship. I'm going to give three traps that we can fall into. Real quickly, three traps that we can fall into that keep us from worshiping God in truth. Number one is when we worship, we worship so for what we can get out of it. What we can get out of it. Now I know God, he, he's a loving father. We're allowed to come in his lap. He wants to, to carry our burdens. I believe all of that perspective of worship. But there's another perspective of worship that when we come to him, we just are telling him who he is. And here's the irony. When you gaze your eyes on Jesus and who he is, 
in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your tribulations, in the midst of your pain, all those things, what happens to them? As the, Paul put it, I consider that the present sufferings of this world are nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. There's a second trap that we need to avoid. Instead of worshiping in truth, we, our worship can be dependent on how we feel. This kind of goes back to the, the other point. We can, how we feel, like, I, I don't really feel like being here. I don't really feel like lifting my hands. I don't really feel like this. Man, I'm so glad Jesus, it was before the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. I mean, he was human. He had emotions. As he was dripping drops of blood, there was the feeling that he didn't want to be there. He wasn't led by his emotions. Here's a, a, an amazing lesson that all worshipers need to learn. It's right out of Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, let us continually offer up a, what does it say? A sacrifice of praise. It's God it's saying, God, I, I don't feel like it, but you're worthy. I don't feel like worshiping, but I'm going to do it anyway. The fact that you don't feel a lot of th times anything just means you're normal like the rest of us. That's where faith comes in. That's why we worship in truth for who he is. Trap number three, instead of worshiping in truth, we worship our worship. Several years ago, before I came on staff, I worked at a, a, a private school. It was within the Episcopal tradition. Great school. And they would have chapel services, morning prayers a couple times a week. And coming from a more charismatic worship experience to a more high church Episcopal worship experience, you can probably get the point that it was really, really hard transition. The ups, the downs, the kneelings, let us praise, the, the lack of instruments, the lack of emotion. I was like, what, what's going on here? And I was struggling to connect, and it was, it was becoming the justification for why I wasn't worshiping when we had worship services. And finally, thankfully, the Lord gently so ever rebuked me. He said, it, he says, so you need all that other stuff to worship me? You have an idol of worship when you're confronted with a change of worship style, a temperature change maybe, <laughs> and you have maybe a change of quality and you can't enter into worship. I'm going to show this other video. This was taken uh, about 2007. Some of us went to Mozambique and we got to worship alongside some prisoners. They, put it, they didn't have bathrooms, okay, like we don't. We have bathrooms right now. They didn't have AC, but it was just one of the most powerful worship times I've ever been a part of. We'll go ahead and play it. instruments, poor acoustics, prisoners singing with all their hearts to the glory of God. The truth of their king far outweighed the facts of their circumstances. Worshippers worship in truth. One last final way we can worship Jesus. Worshippers place their hope in one person, King Jesus. I'm going to go back to verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road 
and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. John's gospel tells us what type of branch it was. You guys, any of you know what branch it was? Palm branches. That's where we get palm branches. Now, palm branches, they weren't picked randomly. They weren't picked arbitrarily. Why did they pick palm branches? Palm branches were a sign of Jewish nationalism. Nationalistic, political pride, triumph. What they're, in a sense, they were saying is that our societal, nationalistic, political future hope is not in Rome, it's not in the synagogues, it's not in the Republicans, it's not in the Democrats, it's not in Caesar, it's not in the president, it's in you, Jesus. True worshipers find their hope, including their political hope, their nationalistic hope in King Jesus. It's one thing to have political preferences, it's a whole other thing to put our hope in politics. Is that relevant today? Wouldn't you say that's relevant? Listen to Jeremiah, the prophet, chapter 17, verse 5. This is his take on how putting our trust in man. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Juxtaposed to that is in verse 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. God will not share his glory with another. As a church, as worshipers, we must be submitted to King Jesus. It's not that we're apolitical. It's just that we are, have a transcendent view of politics. How does Jesus, though, how is he the, the political hope? I mean, he, he, he didn't achieve the political nationalistic things in that story. How can we be hopeful when, I don't recommend, when we watch the news, CNN, Fox News, or even so, social media, Facebook, you just, anyone, any of you done that and you just get the, the, just the, the fear, the anxiety, the, the dread, your wit, you're watching kind of society tear itself apart and... and and I can, I really get it. Most common folks who really, real, we're upset because we actually care about what's happening in society. The problem is, the problems arise when there's just different views of what's right and what's just and what's not. How can we be hopeful? This is where we got to know our Bibles. This is where we got to know Psalm 2. I don't know if we can get it up there, but this, this is a verse we need to, Put our hopes in. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, he holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them with pieces like potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. O warned, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in his way. 
for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, Jesus is coming to defeat the evil, wicked nations of the earth. This text says that he's going to break them with a rod of iron. Rod of iron. And when he comes back again, he's not coming back on a donkey. What's he coming back on? A horse. Revelation 19. Just watch the connections here. Listen to these connections. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in it righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and, has, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them, rule them with a rod of iron. Now, when he comes, you know where he's going to come to do this? Remember Zechariah, the prophet that we quoted in Chapter 9. I'm going to read to you. This is our last verse right here. Zechariah 14. This is why we don't have to fear. This is why we can have hope and trust that at the end of the, when we get to the back of the book, <laughs> Jesus wins. Zechariah prophesies of a day that is yet to come. Behold. Notice the connections between this and the two verses we just read. A day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The evil, wicked nations of the earth will gather against Jerusalem. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out unto exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. As when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand. Where? The Mount of Olives. We just read about the Mount of Olives earlier. It, that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that no half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. Verse 9, last one. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. 